welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we come before you and um, we come in all different degrees of disorientation. And Lord, we need you to orient us now that your word would orient our view of you, um, our view of ourselves, our view of each other. Lord, reorient our view of our purpose here. Lord, reorient especially our loves. Give us a deep and abiding love for you, for your son, and for the work that you have for us to do here, Lord. We pray that you would take all of our lesser loves, our loves of self and our loves of sin, Lord, and and break those, even as we're digging into your word. And we thank you that you've given us your word. I just think how lost we'd be without a word from you. We'd all be left to our own opinions and emotions and moods. And yet, Lord, you've given us an objective word to know that we can know you in this word and we can study this word and we can discuss this word with each other. We can even debate this word and argue this word. We have a starting point, Lord, of truth. And we thank you for that. We pray your spirit would open our hearts to it. And Lord, make your people rejoice in your word this morning. Lord, and those who don't know you, we pray, Lord, that you would draw them yourself to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in uh, the book of 1 Peter, and we're in a kind of in-depth series, and it's called Keep Going. You've got some invite cards there that you could use to invite people. And it's really about the, the Christian art of not giving up. And this morning, we're in specifically in verses 11 through 12. Take a look at them. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, you could download one on your phone or whatever. Or if you want a Bible, you put your hand up, and one of the guys in the back will bring you one. Um, but it's in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. It reads like this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify, your God, glorify God on the day of visitation. There's, there's really one command there in verse 11, and the command is to abstain from the passions of the flesh. You see that in verse 11? And what he's saying is that we should abstain or not do things that we naturally want to do. So there's things that we naturally want to do that he's saying we should abstain from and not do them. This is the exact opposite of the message of the world. Message of the world is like follow your passion. If you guys put a nice picture of the beach and the words follow your passion on your Instagram, it'll blow up. People love that. They love follow your passion, right? They love, you know, do what comes naturally. Do what you want to do. Do what makes you happy. Do what gives you joy. Put some kind of meme out there like that and you'll get likes like crazy, right? But Christianity says just the opposite. Christianity says... Just the opposite, because it's more realistic about human nature. Christianity says there's things in you, things you really, really want to do, which are disastrous if you do them. Okay? Our culture doesn't tell you that. That all those desires in there, some of them, if you fall through on them, are disastrous. He says they wage war against your soul. They would be terrible for your life. He calls them passions of the flesh. And by the flesh here, he doesn't mean passions of your body. The flesh is that spiritual part of you from... Uh, where, where evil urges come from. It's the source of all your wrong desires. And he's saying that we should abstain from those. And Peter doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, stop doing these things. He gives us motives. And in this passage, we'll look for what are our motives for abstaining from the passions of the flesh, for abstaining from things that we really want to do, things that bubble up within, within us. And the reason why he gives us motives, guys, is because to Jesus and the apostles, motives are everything. 
You know, biblical Christianity isn't just about do this, do this, do this, and I don't care why you're doing it. That's, that's man-made religion. Um, Christianity is about a, a heart change and new motives and new desires and new affections and new delights and new joys. And so he goes for the heart and he gives us motivations for why we should want to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I actually see three in here. The first one I see is in verse 11. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That seems like a pretty good reason right there, right? These passions of the flesh are actually warring against your soul. He says he, they, they are soul-destroying passions. They're soul-destroying desires. They're out to kill you, okay? He's like, why should I avoid these? They're out to kill you. They're out to destroy your soul. Your only soul. You actually only have one. And they're after your soul to destroy it. This seems like a pretty good reason. We could stop there, right? We could go, okay, good. Stay away from them because they want to kill us. Like, that's a good reason. That's enough, isn't it? So what are these passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul? Some of them that Peter mentions are ones that you would assume. Like, in chapter 4, he talks about sensuality and drunkenness and lawless idolatry. It's a lot of the things you would assume that the Bible is against. But he mentions a lot of others in 1 Peter that religious people can easily get away with. Okay, there are these other sins, these other evil desires that can that are more camouflaged. Um, they're what uh, Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. There's things you can get away with. You can be a generally moral person and be filled with these things. Things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That's at the beginning of chapter two. Or a little later, he mentions grudges and desires for revenge and unforgiveness. Like those are things you can harbor and look generally moral person. Um, he also mentions grumbling. That's an interesting one, right? Did you know that was a passion of the flesh, grumbling? You're like, uh-oh. How about meddling? Meddling is a passion of the flesh that he mentions later in the book. He mentions pride and judgmentalism and self-righteousness and superiority, right? So these are passions of the flesh as well. And what they all really come down to, guys, if you want to make it simple, they all come down to ways that we worship, other than worshiping Christ. They're all ways of idolatry. They're all ways of pursuing something more than Christ. And what kind of things do we worship? We worship prestige, okay? We worship presentation. I mention that because we're in a social media age. It's all about presentation. You present yourselves, you project yourself to the world in a certain way. That can become your idol, your thing to worship. How, what do people think about me? Do they think I have that all together? They think I'm so witty, those kind of things. We worship prestige, presentation, power, you know, and you think, well, I'm not about power. You know, I'm just a housewife. Well, you might have a power thing over your husband. You might have a power thing over your kids. You might have power things over family, right? Power, pleasure, and possessions. Um, novelist uh, David Foster Wallace, he was not a Christian, and he said this, and you can look up this speech. He gave this com commencement speech in 2005. It's called This is Water. So if you look up This is Water and David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, he said this to this commencement. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And that is the compelling, and, and the compelling reason for you to choose some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning, you will never have enough. You always feel like you never have enough. If you worship your body and, and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you actually die. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need more and more control over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect 
being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, this is still him, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious, they are the default settings of your heart. This is a non-Christian commencement speech. That's a good one, right? This is David Foster Wallace. This is water. These are the passions of the flesh that, Paul, that Peter's mentioning here that are the real worship of our heart. They're worship of idols. And just like Foster Wallace said, they will eat you alive. Peter's saying abstain from him, and it's in present tense, which means keep on abstaining. So this isn't something where you can kind of tell your passions of your flesh no, put a no solicitor sign, and you're good for the rest of your life. No, we constantly war with these things, don't we? They constantly come up. There has to be a habit of the heart, guys, of abstaining and repelling and repenting. And why should we do that? They are actually warring against our souls. Jesus said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? If you're looking for somebody to learn how to live from, Jesus is the person, right? This says things like that. These desires that you have can cost you your soul. They're waging war against your soul. They're soul destroying, they're soul crushing, they're soul corrosive. Some of us guys are so careful about what we eat. Oh, you can eat that? Oh, that has toxins. I'm always like, well, which toxins? What are the chemical names of the toxins? Oh, I don't know. But there's all kinds of toxins in there. So careful about what you put in your mouth, right? They're toxic. Guys, these passions of the flesh are toxic to your soul, your eternal soul. And so don't let them have access. Don't let your soul marinate in these things. We have to repent of them. Secondly, why should we abstain from the passions which wage war against your soul? And I think this is the main point of this passage, is they hinder your life's mission. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they see, when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify your God, uh, glorify God on the day of visitation. In context here, Peter's talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about non-Jews. He's talking about any non-Christians in the context of the book. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that we need to keep our conduct honorable so that non-Christians will be able to know and understand who God is. But does that sound familiar to you? Peter said, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Did anyone else say something very similar to that? Is it somebody? It said something very similar in the Bible. <laughs> right? They may see your good deeds and glorify God. Who said that? Something very similar. Jesus, right? Where did he say it? Sermon on the Mount, right? Peter was at the Sermon on the Mount, actually, 30 years before. And remember, this is what Jesus said. It sounds very similar. Matthew 5, 14. You are, a light of, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And, and we guys are called to both display the gospel and declare the gospel. It's very important that we have a life that fits the gospel, and we have the words of the gospel. We need both deeds, light, and we need words. Because, guys, no one will get saved by seeing your good life. You realize that? Nobody's going to like see your good life and go like, man, you're such a good employee. I bet salvation is by grace through faith, not of my own works. <laughs> like, they're not going to get that, right? Like, that's the starting point, right? But they need to hear it, right? They need to hear it. The gospel, guys, is news. It has to be declared even as it's being displayed. Um, and that just the display won't save anyone. You guys realize that we are called to be Peter, we are called to be Jesus' witnesses, 
The original disciples, the apostles, were witnesses of the resurrection, right? They saw him be resurrected, and they were witnesses of that. We are witnesses of Christ in what we have read in the Word, and what we've seen in the power of our lives and in the power of the church, right? We are witnesses of that. You're Jesus' witnesses, all of you. The good news is, guys, is that you're Jesus' witnesses, not his attorney, this is super important because those, have, those, those two have very different roles. A witness, guys, is somebody that gives a little piece of what they know and they've seen. An attorney has to give an airtight, complete defense and win the case. You're called to be his witness, not his attorney. Isn't that a relief? Right? It's not your job to put forward this airtight case in defense and, and win, win the case of the human heart. Right? It's your job to be a witness, um, your job is just to give the one piece that you know. And guys, if God is after that person, he's going to provide witness after witness after witness. Different people, um, things that he does in their lives, in the world, things that he shows them himself in the word, his own internal testimony to their hearts. He has a case to make. You don't have a case to make. You're there just to be a witness. Isn't that a relief? You guys realize the only attorney in the Gospels is the Holy Spirit, that word parakletos, it means counselor. And in the first century, it can mean legal counsel, okay? And so it's the Holy Spirit's job to put forward an airtight case and, and win the human heart. That's not your job. You're a witness, not as attorney. Isn't that great? That's the best news you ever heard. But, okay, but you do have to speak, okay? You do have to speak, right? Because silent witnesses aren't witnesses. Put you up on the witness stand. Hey, what did you see? Okay, next witness. You know, like that doesn't work, right? So witnesses do have to speak, but you're bringing one part of the case. You are proclaiming his excellencies, as Josh talked about last week. That's your life mission is to be a witness. I just recently heard um, there's a college student that had asked um, psychologist um, uh, Jordan Peterson. He said that he asked this to him. He goes, what should I do with my life? This is a very good college student kind of question. And he said this. I love this answer. What should I do with my life? He said, find the highest conceivable good and then orient your whole life around it. Now, this is a secular guy. That's a great answer. What should you do with your life? Find the highest conceivable good and orient your whole life around it. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're playing games with your life. You're wasting your life, right? Guys, as Christians, we have the highest conceivable good. Do you realize that your life mission is that you exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. You exist for that. Now, I don't know if you guys journal or write your life mission, your family's life mission, one of those, I'm doing the bullet journal thing. And you might, you know, in the beginning, write down what your life mission and stuff is. If you've got a better one than that, go for it. I don't know what it would be, but, you know, I exist to be an influencer, an entrepreneur. Let's say that's cool. How about this? I exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Guys, we have the best possible life mission. We have the best possible life mission. Now the hard work is to orient your life around that highest conceivable good, right? Peter's saying here that the passions of the flesh greatly hinder that life mission. That's what he's saying here. He's saying it greatly, if that's your life mission, then you got to do the hard work of dealing with your heart. Because if you're going to live a life that you can declare the gospel from, then you're going to have to first deal with the passions of the flesh, and you have to deal with those ongoingly. And you think, well, why does my conduct matter? If people are saved by the good news of Jesus, why does my life matter in this whole thing? Go back to the courtroom thing. Somebody gives their testimony in a court of law. What does the cross-examiner do first? 
tear the witness's character down, right? Like, that's the thing. It's like, why should I believe this person? There's immediately the cross-examiner is going to try to discredit the witness's character, right? The character of the witness is vital because that's how we know we can trust their testimony. Some people are going to try to tear down your character. It says in verse 12, look at it. It says, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, right? When they speak against you as evildoers. That's a common tactic because the Holy Spirit's making a case. You're one of the witnesses, Let's try to shred the witness. It's, it's a natural human response, and guys, there's nothing personal about it. Nothing personal. If you stop testifying, they will leave you alone, right? Why were the people suffering in First Peter? Because they're witnesses, right? It's nothing personal. It's you've spoken out. This happened in the first century. You know, in the, first, in the, first, in the early church, um, it was a common thing to speak against Christians and saying that, oh, Christians, they practice incest. That was a common thing. He's like, oh, I'm going to church now. I'm a Christian. Oh, I heard about you guys. You guys practice incest. What's that about? Well, they called each other brother and sister, and some of those brothers and sisters were married, okay? They weren't spirit. They were spiritually brother and sister. They weren't physically brother and sister. The world said, oh, they practice incest. They also said that we were cannibals, okay? They said that because of the Lord's Supper, right? Eat this flesh, drink his blood, you know, we're taking communion, and they were like, oh, these people practice cannibalism. They called us atheists. That's a weird one. But if you think about in a polytheistic area where you're worshiping all these different gods, and we refuse to worship all those gods, they go, atheists. They didn't understand that our God is Jesus, right? They just saw what we wouldn't worship, and they called us atheists. They also called us unpatriotic, right? Because it turns out if you will not worship the country's gods, and we go to war, and our people get creamed, you know whose fault it is? Your fault, because you would not be, do the patriotic thing and offer the sacrifices you should offer. And you can see all the ways that, that Christians were slandered. Why slander the witnesses? Slander them because they don't want to have to deal with the testimony. And like I say, guys, it's nothing personal. If you're slandered as a Christian, it's nothing personal. It's a way to stop having to hear the very strong case against Jesus. Your life, guys, is not the case, but you are important because you're a witness, and we want to be a credible one. And that's what this passage is about. And so Peter's saying that we need to live these, these credible lives that quiet negative stereotypes, okay? Um, members of minority groups are often have a feeling that they have to live exceptionally before people because of negative stereotypes about their group. They often feel a pressure that I have to live a certain level higher than everybody else, people in certain minority groups, certain level higher to quiet stereotypes. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to live in such a way that they would see our good deeds and glorify God. And guys... We have our work cut out for us. Are there any negative stereotypes about Christians? Are they self-inflicted? Mostly, <laughs> yes. So there's a lot of negative stereotypes about Christians and Christianity, and a lot of the negative stereotypes about Christians are deserved. Some of them are undeserved. And guys, we cannot control what the world thinks about Christians, but you can influence what your neighbors think about Christians. Okay? So you think like, oh man, you know, you see these things in the news and the way the Christians are, are portrayed and things like that and the way that they're acting and they're caught on film. You can't, de you can't determine how the world sees Christians, but you can influence how your neighbor thinks about Christians. And by your neighbor, I mean your neighbor, like your physical real neighbor. Um, I think that's important. It means co-workers, classmates, clients, but your literal neighbor. We not, won't want to forget about the guy right next to you, Right? Okay, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but if you take a look at First uh, Peter chapter three, look at verse fifteen because it relates. He says, "In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks 
for a reason, for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See what's going on there? He says, anyone who asks. What's the implication there if he says to anyone who asks that people are what? They're asking questions. And what does that say about your life that they're asking questions? Your life is questionable, okay, in a good way. And so what Peter's saying here is that we are to live questionable lives, lives that are, are so, so much love and service to the lost, to people around us, that our lives are surprising, they're questionable, and they demand an answer. That you would so much live for the people around you, especially those who don't know Jesus, that they would have questions. This doesn't add up. There's something confusing about you. Why are you doing this? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that convicting? It's helpful, though. The early church lived questionable lives. There's a guy, um, Emperor Julian. He was after Constantine. So we had like a couple hundred years of mass persecution in the Roman Empire. Church survives and even thrives through that. Constantine becomes emperor. He has allegiance to Christianity. Christianity is okay then. A little bit later, another emperor comes, Emperor Julian, and he goes back to paganism, and they call him Julian the Apostate. Okay, so that tells you something. I assume the Christians called him Julian the Apostate. And he was writing a letter to someone else, and he said this, haven't you noticed that it's the Christians' benevolence to strangers and their care for the graves of the dead and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done so much to increase atheism? Okay, remember, he's talking about Christianity when he's saying that. He's saying it's, it's, their, it's their kindness to strangers, to foreigners, to the poor, and it's their care for the graves of the dead. What's that? When people died back then, there weren't all these services. Christians would actually bury people they didn't know dead for them and give them a decent burial. It was an act of, of love towards their neighbor, right? And he says this, um, uh, Julian, Emperor Julian, he says, it's disgraceful that these Galileans, that's what they called Christians, um, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. He goes, this is a disgrace. We need to clean this up. And he said, and everyone sees the lack of support coming from us. So he's complaining, like, these people are, like, are serving their neighbors and serving people around us in very questionable ways. That's our spiritual heritage, guys. I'm not, like, coming up with something new. Like, that's the way Christianity thrived. One more illustration. In 1732, there were these two young Moravian Christians. They were in their 20s. is in Germany. And they were doing Bible study and having all these kind of things. They were hardcore Christians, great people. And they, they realized that there were slave islands um, in the West Indies where there were tons of African slaves and no access to the gospel. Okay? And there were islands like St. Thomas and St. Croix and places like that. And they, and they learned that these slaves had no access to the gospel. So these two young guys, their 20s, they volunteer to go work on a slave island. You know, not as a foreman, but like in the fields. They even offered to sell themselves into slavery if that's what it took. Because these weren't vacation destinations. You couldn't just like go there on vacation. You were either a slave or you weren't allowed. And so these people offered themselves to go there. And as these two young men were on this slave ship and they're headed off to the West Indies, don't know if they're ever going to come back. Um, they lock arms and they raise their hands and they, they cried out to their family or weeping at the docks, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. And they cried this out. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Isn't that awesome? So good. Guys, we're called to live lives that are questionable for others so that people want to know why. Surprising, questionable lives. And so I think that's where we need to think because you think like, well, how can I be more effective evangelistically? I would write this down. How can I live before my neighbors in a surprising, questionable way? Now that puts an edge on it, right? Now how can I be like kind of a good person? Because guys, they're not going to be surprised by your church attendance or general moral behavior. 
They expect that from you, okay? There needs to be something more surprising. And we have a heritage of this, like I said, from, from church history. So first thing would be, do they know you're Christian? Yeah, I think that's a big one. Do you know their name? <laughs> okay, let's start there. Do, you know, do they know your name? Do, do you know their name? Do they know that you're a Christian? Um, we're getting into Advent in a couple weeks, and we're going to look at Advent as a season of announcement. So I'm going to give you guys some very practical ways, and it's not just for you guys, for me too, that we would reach out to our neighbors, that we'd let them know we're Christians, we would give them some gospel resources, um, but that we really start to reach out to our neighbors. This is the best season. You know, if you're a deer hunter or whatever, you're like, deer hunting season, let's go. This is the best season to share the gospel with people. It's like Christ mass. So that's like way better than the 4th of July for this, okay? This is the best time to do it. We're going to have a season through Luke, and it's going to be great. So um, we'll, we'll dig into that in a couple weeks. But you need to ask yourself, how can I live a surprising, questionable life? Um, how can I be a, a questionable, surprising Christian? How can I be the kind of person that somebody goes like, you're a strange human. What drives you, Right? That's, what, that's the kind of thing that we want them to be asking. Um, what could you do uh, to live for them in s- such a way that's just not normal? I thought of a few things. Maybe there's some extravagant way you could help your neighbor. You know, maybe there's some way you could bless their kids beyond their expectation. Maybe there's a, a medical bill that you know about that you're going to cover for them. Maybe you're going to buy them groceries. Maybe you're going to provide transportation to, to a neighbor that doesn't have it. Maybe you're going to go over there and help them with uh, home repairs right? These are all very bizarre. You realize that, right? How many of you guys have a neighbor that's done those kind of things for you? Some of you do. Okay, a few of you do. This is very strange. Most neighborhoods, works like this. You're out front. Neighbor pulls up. Well, before you see the neighbor, the garage door moves, and then you know he's coming. And then he parks in there and clicks it down. There's like no way to get this guy unless you hang out at the mailboxes or something. Our old house, the mailbox is right in front of our house. So I could be like, hey, getting your mail, you know, like that kind of thing. But this is very unusual kind of thing. Or maybe you have them over to your house. How many of us have had our neighbors over to our house? Just like pizza or something, like nothing complicated, right? Guys, hospitality is surprising in our time. Or we could go out of our way to encourage them, could offer friendship to them, you know, could listen to them. I mean, that's a really lost thing. Very few people in this world that have somebody who listen to them for an hour and just listen sympathetically to what's going on in their lives. Um, we are called to live in questionable, surprising ways so they have questions for us. So they'd be like, you're a weird human being. I've never met a human being like you. You know, why are you doing what you do? What drives you? And then what happens? And we offer the gospel. We say, well, this is what drives me. And then what happens from there? Well, I would need some answers for why you believe that, right? That's exactly what First Peter says, right? He says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks. Okay, the ask comes because of the life for a reason with the hope that's in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a great thing? I mean, we, I want to tell you this. I want to make this really clear. We have no other plan to reach your neighbor besides you. Just in case you were wondering, like, what's the evangelistic plan in this church? You know, like, it's you. Sorry. I mean, I, I know you guys probably thought it was something else. Does that surprise you when I say that? You're like, I don't think this church is planning things. You know, like, we have no other plan to reach your neighbor at the gospel besides you. And we're not going to pay someone else to do it. That doesn't make sense. If we're going to pay somebody to, like, reach people the gospel, you know where we're going to send them? Where Lorian went, to an unreached people group. Why? Because they don't have Christian neighbors to share the gospel with them there. You go to a place in the Middle East like Lorian is or where Holly is, and there is no Christian neighbor. See, your neighbor has a Christian neighbor, and it's you. Okay, so you see how I did that again? 
You went like, I think I'm loose. I'm like, no, no, he got me again. Oh, you know, like we have no other plan but you. And look at the wonderful effects. Look at verse 12. The wonderful effects of this. Look at verse 12. It says, so that they may see your good deeds, verse 12, and glorify God on the day of visitation. This idea, day of visitation, is a wonderful Old Testament image. And there's two things that the day of visitation, as you go through, one of them is judgment. God comes to visit judgment in the world, and it's something the world really needs. A lot of us complain about, you know, there's so much injustice in the world and stuff like that, and you say, well, Jesus is coming to make it right. No, we don't want that. Okay, well, that's the solution, okay? The solution is judgment. He comes in judgment, but the other thing he does throughout the Old Testament is he'll visit to rescue. And in our time, that's what we're looking forward to Jesus doing. He's coming both to judge and to rescue, when he comes, he's coming to rescue his people. He's coming to judge his enemies. Peter talked about it in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise to return, his visitation, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Because of these things, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they're burned. But according to his promise, listen to this, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he, he's going to make a new one. But you see, guys, in there both the judgment and the rescue the day of visitation that's coming. And Peter's saying that we should abstain from the passions of the flesh and live these questionable lives so that they would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And you could take that two ways. You could say, you know, they'll, even the lost are going to glorify God on the day of visitation. Everyone's knee will bow and everyone's tongue will confess. And when they see that, yes, there was a solid case put before me and I rejected it, that glorifies God. But you know, this word here for glorify... Doxazo, it occurs 61 times in the New Testament, and it's always about voluntary, happy worship of God's people. So what is he saying here? He's specifically focusing on the fact there's some people right now that slander Christians, maybe even slander you, and because of the way that God works through your life, one day they're going to come to faith in Christ, and they will glorify, worship Jesus on the day of visitation. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that something you want to be a part of, right? It's amazing that as we both display questionable life, and declare the gospel word, they'll come and they'll be more worshipers of Jesus through what he's done through us. Now, I do want to say this. This is the back and forth. This is not all up to you, okay? This is not all up to you. We rest in the fact that God is sovereign and he's the only one that can give faith, but he lets us be a part of this. And we should want to be a part of this. I mean, we think about like Jesus receiving more worship on the final day because of some way he worked through our lives. People came to Christ and they're worshiping Jesus and they're exalting him. Like that's something that gets us excited, doesn't it? We get to be a part of it. You're not saving people. You're a, you're a witness. I love what Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon said in the 1800s. He said this, listen to him. Listen to this heart of this guy. No joy visits my soul like knowing that Jesus is highly exalted. Isn't that cool? No joy visits my soul like knowing that Jesus is highly exalted, especially that to him every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. No joy visits his soul, visits his soul, I love that old language, right? Visits his soul like that, that Jesus would have more worshipers on the day of visitation. Guys, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. Like that's our motive. 
Our motive is the glory of God, the worship of God. Like Josh was talking about last week, you know, missions and evangelism exist because worship doesn't. Because there's a worship vacuum in the universe. Everybody should see Jesus and who he is and want to worship him. And that's why we want to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They get in the way of our life mission. And then the last one, this is quick. We should abstain from the passions of the flesh because they don't fit our identity. They don't fit who we are. You know, we already looked at how they don't fit our life mission. They don't fit our identity. These kind of merely human desires, these kind of earthly desires, they don't fit who we are. Look at who we are. Look at verse 11. You should look. Verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. There's three identities there. Two of them go together. Guys, you're a sojourner and an exile. This isn't your place. You know, we're passing through, right? These passions of the flesh to acquire more pleasure and prestige and possessions and power in this tiny little brief life to try and scoop up as many as you can. That's not our deal anymore. Is it your deal anymore? That's not your deal anymore. You're a sojourner. You're, you're in exile. Have you guys ever heard the expression, I don't have a horse in this race? You ever heard that before? People are arguing, it's like, I don't have a horse in this race. What does it mean? It means that how this, this fight turns out doesn't involve me. I haven't bet on a horse. It's a betting thing, right? I don't have a horse I bet on in this race. It means that this race doesn't affect me. I don't win or lose depending on how it turns out. Guys, you don't win or lose depending on how you rank in this world's game. It's prestige game. It's presentation game. It's possession game. It's power game. It's pleasure game. You're not into that anymore, are you? You're not really into that. You get into it sometimes, but you're not really into it. It isn't your game. You don't have a horse in this race. You're actually just passing through. You're a sojourner. You're in exile. You're on your way to a better country. You're living, you're living for them, right? You're living for them in such a way that God would be glorified and they would have eternal joy. That's your game now. You're not into the other stuff anymore, right? I mean, guys, let the people of the world fight over the things of the world. Let them fight over it. Let them fight over who's the smartest and who has the most influence and who's, you know, morally superior and who's the most clever and who's the most successful. Let them fight that out. You guys need to hear that tomorrow at work. Maybe some of you guys don't work tomorrow. Tuesday, you'll need to know. But seriously, I mean, I had this, <laughs> this I'm a horse vet. I had this other uh, veterinarian and we were working, on, I was working on a case and then she had him work on the case and then she had me work on the case and he calls and he's all in a huff you know, about it, because he's all worked up, because he started it, and, you know, and, and, and it's not going well, and I was involved, in it. and his thing was like, I just can't have this, and I said, what? Like, it was like an old horse, like a 30-year-old horse that limps. I mean, this is like pretty normal stuff, you know? Like, when you're 100, which is what this horse is, you're going to limp too. This isn't a crisis, you know? Like, this is, this just happens. This is age, okay? But um, he's like, I just can't have it turn out this way, and I'm like, why? So it's got my name on it. And I'm like, it's got your name, like, written on the side of the horse or what? Like, <laughs> no one cares, man. But he's so wound up in, like, his prestige and how he presents himself. And, you know, any animal that he touches has to prosper, I guess, for eternity, you know, or, or his name's on it. And it's like, guys, let the people of the world fight over the things of the world. Let them fight over who's smartest and most influenced and most, you know, morally superior, most, you know, globally conscious, most whatever, guys, they're fighting over. Because guess what? Everybody loses that game in the end. Everybody. When? Day of visitation. Yeah. Day of visitation, you go, oh, I wasn't the smartest. <laughs> oh, I guess I'm not the most influential. It's a big bummer. 
you know, if you're playing that game, right? I'm not the most morally superior, right? I'm not clever. I'm not successful, right? Because on that day, guys, all of our sins are exposed. And on that day, guys, the most valuable thing you could possibly have as your identity is the first verse of chapter 11, that you're his beloved. That's the identity you need to focus on. You're his beloved, guys. Peter calls them beloved because they're his beloved, but mainly because they're God's beloved, right? You are God's beloved. You should abstain from the passions of the flesh because you're God's beloved. Jesus is coming back to visit his beloved on the day of visitation. He's going to come and do judgment, but he's coming to visit his beloved. Jesus Christ already made a first trip, a first visitation. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus came the first time to rescue us, his beloved. As the old hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. He came that first time. If you're a Christian this morning, it's because God set his affection on you before he made the world and called you to be his beloved. But there's a problem, right? There's his beloved on this side, there's him on this side. What was in between? It was our sin, right? It was our sin, that we had sinned in all kinds of ways, that we had chosen the passions of the flesh over his love. And so God sends his own son on a rescue mission, a rescue mission to get his bride. It's the ultimate like damsel in distress story, except the damsel, it's all her doing, okay? Her distress is all her doing. It was our sin that put that wedge between us and God. But because Jesus has come on the cross and died for our sins, the second time he's gonna come to visit us and to live with us forever. Because Jesus' death on the cross, nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? No sin, no passion of the flesh, which you're currently warring with, can separate you from him. We are forever the Lord's beloved. It's all his doing. It's all his gift. Now, guys, that kind of kills a desire for the passion of the flesh, doesn't it? When you think about being his beloved, think about his love and faithfulness for you, you want to love him more and be more faithful to him, don't you? Right? Because of his love. Because you're his beloved. Now, one last little thing. The Lord made a really interesting visit. I can't get past it. In Exodus, he visited his people in a really unique way. There was a whole, like, you know, tablets and mountain, don't come near the mountain, you'll die thing. But then there's this other really interesting one. In Exodus 24, verse 9, it says that Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and the 70 elders, they went up on this mountain, and it says they beheld God and ate and drank with him. It's so interesting because, you know, in Exodus, like, don't come near the mountain, you can't see me or anything. But then there's this strange little picnic on the mountain where they see God and they eat and drink with him. And I'm thinking, can you imagine? Some of you guys like to go out and hike and stuff like that. I like to go out and hike. Can you imagine, like, find a nice place on the hill, get your food out, you're with your friends, and God shows up and you see him? This is amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. That, guys, is a picture of his coming, that he is going to come back to visit his beloved, and he's going to stay with us forever, and we're going to eat and drink and behold him. How cool is that? So cool. And guys, the Lord's Supper is a taste of that day. The Lord's Supper is a taste of the day of visitation. The Lord's Supper is like a, a stop that we can make, a little spot that we can rest in our journey and eat and drink before the Lord. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. And so it's only for his beloved, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's only for his beloved. And you're his beloved if you're turning away from the passions of the flesh and trusting in Jesus. Not perfectly, but you're turning away from it and you're trusting in Jesus. And if you're not his beloved, if you're like, that's not me, 
you know, that can be you today. And guys, you realize today is the only day you know you have, right? I think that's really important. When we think about Jesus and we think about our response to him and we think about our decision we're gonna make about who he is and what place he'll be in our life, today is the only day you know you have, right? We know that, don't we? Somewhere down deep inside, we know we do. And you can have him today. Will you take him? I'll just ask you, if you're, if you're hesitant, if you're like, no, you know, there's some things I still want in the world, which are the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Still want those. Not sure I want to come to him yet. I would ask you this question. Who has ever loved you like Jesus? Who has ever loved you like Jesus? From heaven, he came and sought you to be his holy bride. With his own love, he bought you, and for your life, he died. I just don't know what you're going to find out there that's better than this. You guys have something better going on? Do you? Do you have some, like, pleasure that's better than that? Or you have some thing you want more than that? A relationship? Like, you don't have anything better going on than this, guys. This isn't about, like, you know, Jesus is here and he, he really needs you to come to him. No, Jesus is this amazing gift. You need to come to him. You're the one that needs him. It's amazing, and it's not earning, guys. You know, maybe you hear some of this and you think, oh, it's about earning, it's about being a good person. It's not. It's about just believing and receiving. And maybe you have a lot of questions still, but today you can know that you're his beloved and you can get all those questions sorted out later, right? To know you're God's beloved is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the mission you've given us, but even more, Lord, we thank you that we're your beloved. Think about when the, the 70 went out, the 70 disciples went out, and they were like, oh, wow, the, the evil powers are subject to us, and they're casting out demons. They come back all excited, and your son said, you should really be rejoicing that your names are written in heaven in the book of life, and we're most thankful that we're your beloved, and then from that, Lord, we really, really, really want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. We really would like our lives to be used in some way for the worship of Jesus through people who come to know him. And we pray, Lord, just help us with that, Lord. We, we, we need to clean up our own house. We need to clean up our own hearts. And yet we don't have to do that ourselves, Lord. Your spirit comes in and he, and he rearranges things and he changes our motives and he gets rid of our greed and our selfishness and our laziness and our ego and all of those idols that are in there so that we can live for others. And we pray, Lord, that you do that. Even as we take communion, Lord, we pray that you'd feed us in such a way that we would um, be stronger than we were before, Lord. Take our lives, Father, all of it. Make our lives a display and declaration of the gospel. Make our lives surprising and questionable, even to ourselves, to be able to look back and go like, what is God doing in my life? This is so strange that he would have me doing this. Lord, surprise us with your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper, um, and in the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit actually nourishes our souls. And I was thinking of the image this way. It's our souls, our souls that have been under siege by the passions of the flesh, which have waged war against them all week, get a moment to rest in the Lord's Supper and a moment to be fed. Your weary, embattled, beaten, bloodied soul, your sojourning, exiled soul, your beloved soul, he wants to meet you here in the Lord's Supper. And it's a spot, it's like it's a spot along the trail of your sojourning where you can rest and you can eat and drink before the Lord. 
And it's so cool that as the Lord does this, he feeds us as we remember that the bread, which is gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that, the bread symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us. The juice symbolizes his blood that has washed us clean. And as we meditate on those, he feeds us. And guys, just so you know, the reason why the pieces are little is because the real meal is Jesus' presence. The symbols. And so as you gather together, maybe you're going to do it as family, or friends, or just the person next to you, and, uh, invite somebody in with you that you don't normally take communion with, and you dwell on that. Just be cognizant of the fact that Jesus wants to meet you in this place. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.